Hello, and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. New episodes come out every second Monday. Please subscribe if you want to keep up to date. If you want to reach me, you can do that on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook and message me there, or you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. If you want to support me and help me with covering the costs of production and hosting, you can make monthly or one-off donations at patreon.com slash soundofthemoment. And thank you so much to those of you who are already donating. This is episode 42 for the 10th of June 2019. Guitarist Taisa May is my guest, and he recently released his debut album called Where the Fence is Highest. Before we get into my conversation with Tais, here's a track from that album. This is part of the Armed to the Teeth suite, and it is entitled Palm.
guitarist, composer, band leader, uh, Thais Samé is my guest today on the show. Thais, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I always like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit, tell people a bit about who you are, what you do, where you're from, and all those kinds of boring questions yeah. <laughs> that I always start with. Uh, my name is Thais Samé. I'm born in Denmark, uh, quickly moved to Sweden, where I grew up playing uh, playing guitar and classical piano and studying a bit of composition. And since uh, since six years ago, I've been living in Amsterdam and working with my band, trying to write my music. Uh, I play a lot in my bands. I also play a lot in other people's bands. And I, yeah, that's that's what I do. I write a lot of music. Yeah. Um, I was not aware until kind of doing a bit of research on you today that uh, you ever played classical piano. Um, I suppose that a lot of people go through that thing, but it sounds like you uh, like properly did that until the point where you decided to make that switch and also come to Amsterdam and stuff. Like, what <clears throat> was that like an obvious decision to you to kind of be like, okay, I'm going to play jazz guitar, even though like, well, whatever that's supposed to mean, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. For me, I always played uh, classical piano in my childhood because I listened to classical music from my parents, and I went to school where we were supposed to play piano. Mm -hmm. And I, I really liked listening to classical music. Uh, I liked learning how to play Debussy and Ravel and stuff like this. Uh, but at some point, I just lost uh, lost my infatuation for for classical piano. Okay. I've, I I remember really feeling strongly at some point that that when everything is written, there can only be mistakes. So <laughs> that's an interesting <laughs> I way to want put it. to play it anymore. I wanted to be able to choose more myself how I deal with the music and where I was. If I interpreted classical music too much, I would get uh, get told by my friends and my teachers that it's not supposed to be like that. Ah, okay, yeah. No, that that makes sense. And so you also. Like formally studied composition before coming and uh, coming here and studying here is that correct? Well, yeah, I, I studied uh, one year in a school in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. That was uh, it was a newly begun jazz education. Okay, um, jazz guitar, but it was very new. It was that year that they started it, and it was actually a classical school. So I decided to do also classical piano and uh, go into the composition uh, classes there. Mm -hmm. So I spent that year working a lot with the composition teachers and, and studying yeah. that basically. But you already knew that your focus was to to figure out how to do the jazz guitar thing. Yeah, basically. that was always my top one focus since since uh, since age seven. Yeah, cool. And so why this is always that kind of uh, obvious question to uh, to foreigners that come to Amsterdam. Why Amsterdam? What was the the uh, initial decision there? Um, yeah, the initial decision was just at uh, at some point in Sweden. Uh, I've always kind of followed. I've always kind of followed the way uh, that the path is led out for me. And usually, as I grew up, the path is that you go to high school while you do music or music high school, and then you go to some kind of secondary mm -hmm. after high school thing, and then a conservatory. So when the time came for conservatory, I was uh, trying to. Look around and see what was happening, and I kind of felt like I wanted to move away from anything too comfortable. Uh, I moved around in my childhood a lot, also, mm -hmm. so I didn't want to be staying one place. I felt like I wasn't done escaping. Yeah, so I escaped Sweden as well, <laughs> and I went to Amsterdam, and it was sort of, sort of random in the sense that I just wanted to get away, and I heard about this school, in this city. Yeah, it was a lucky. Lucky call. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. And and so um, and maybe this is skipping ahead now, but uh, uh, discussing the idea of of, uh, of escaping and all that kind of stuff. Are, are you at this point kind of settled on being here? Is that a difficult question to to, to answer? Yeah. I mean, I know that you you just got back from from being in LA for a while, yeah. but and, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit. But like, have you? It seems to me like. The Dutch scene has somewhat embraced you, um, and and like the beginnings of your career. So, is that something that you're kind of? Yeah, I feel I feel it's kind of tough to say if I'm settled or not. But I'm definitely now looking uh, forward towards a period of my life where 
I'm looking more to have a station here and and traveling from here in Amsterdam. But it's also hard to say because I like I'm I'm not comfortable with the idea yet of staying a place. So I like to have one <laughs> foot out of the door. Yeah. Uh, okay. No, that 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 uh, fair enough. Um, and I suppose yeah, you've only you've only just finished your studies, so that makes sense that you. Yeah. Um, I suppose now is maybe the time when people start to make those kinds of decisions, right? So. Um, yeah, they seem to make themselves. I always had the the feeling with decisions that if you just don't make them, sometimes they make themselves for you. <laughs> this is true. So yeah. I'm just trying to write it out and focus all my energy on my music, and uh, and then hopefully at some point a door open and I can just slip through. Yeah. No, fair enough. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk about the record, and, and there's a lot of stuff to to talk about here. But so um, this is your debut as a leader. It's called. Um, where the fence is the highest. Yeah. Um, and it, well, there's quite a few uh, specifics that I want to talk about, but first of all, um, the thing that jumps out at you is the structure of it, which is that it is two suites. Uh, can you tell me about the like the choice of material and, and what is it about that kind of structure of a suite that appeals to you so much? Yeah, I, I'm... I think what appealed to me a lot with writing suites was that I've always been uh, the kind of guitarist and musician that has too many things in my head. So I just write a bunch of unconnected things and a lot of really unmelodic or just completely just so many things all the mm -hmm. time. So I really wanted to force myself to to work with a bigger structure and get closer to what I heard as a child in classical music as well. Uh, using only a few themes or uh, moods and try to really nail a mood change rather than a complete uh, material change every time. Yeah. So I try to work a lot with how the band just sounds playing similar things. Yeah. And change the mood. So that's why I, I decided to do the suites. It was also a period in my life where I just was really into trying to write bigger uh, pieces with more space for mm. bands. Yeah, and then I suppose the logical uh, next thing there is that there is also two bands on the record, and yeah. each suite has its own band. Is that because um, is that just like a compositional imperative that it was like, okay, this is kind of the instrumentation that I wrote for, or was that like what is the thinking behind that? Uh, yeah, I, the, the two bands is more a reflection of that. That I feel like going through Amsterdam I've never been the person to just have my band it's always changed a lot and uh, the two suites came from two different uh, concerts that I decided to just write for and mm -hmm. they had bigger different setups with different people and I always kind of saw myself as more of a reflection of an environment than having my own one band yeah so yeah to the to the dismay of of the poor people around me I can never really settle on one band <laughs> <laughs> uh, it always changes, and I have all my friends, you know, and yeah. we, we make music and different music with different bands, which forces me to write a lot of music also. Yeah, because I want to write different music for every different person. Yeah, sure. Can you can you go into specifics a bit about the people that are on the record, like who who they are, what those? Um, maybe I, I'm not going to ask you to kind of contrast and compare the two bands because that's a terrible <laughs> way to put it but I mean like yeah. tell me a bit about the, uh, about the individuals where yeah, you chose sure. them and that kind of stuff uh, well the first suite is called the Japan Suite and it has uh, Guy Salmon on drums which I found years ago um, we started playing together and he has such a rough uh, rough and kind of earthy sound in his drumming mm -hmm. uh, Kind of heavy, and it was felt like he read my mind every time we played. So every time we would, anything would happen, we would always go the same place constantly yeah. and make up hits, but always hit them the same way for a long time. Yeah, it was okay. kind of weird. Hmm. So we had the completely same idea of of music and it was kind of brutal in his way of playing, and I liked that um, uh, contrasted with maybe where. Okay, wait, let me start with the pen suite. So yeah. there's Guy, and then there's Jort Tevine, which I also made in Holland, mm -hmm. who I feel fits really well with Guy. Yeah, He has also this this brutal, uh, really projecting, fat, here's me yeah. kind of sound and personality in music. Yeah. And he will also 
uh, disobey my orders as much as he wants, which I like. <laughs> That's the bass player for those that don't. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and on the piano, uh, there's Xavi Torres. Mm-hmm. When I moved here, he was a big idol of mine. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I kept looking up to him until he told me that I need to cut it out and just start chilling out around him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then since then, I've been playing with him at every chance I have, and he adds this crazy. Uh, colorful palette to the music that that uh, yeah the way they they're all like kind of um, explosive uh, musicians as well so you just need to give them some material whatever and yeah. just make them play and they start making stuff together they're yeah. very adhesive they don't stay in their own world mm-hmm. and yeah Fuen Santa is on vocals and she's just a really great a great soul to have in a band she adds a lot of color and personality Together yeah. with Nicolo, they both have this very uh, lyrical, always melting sound that just falls out when they play, <laughs> falls out of their mouths. Yeah. And then me, because I wrote it. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, the other one, it's, it's more my attempt to make a more raw uh, statement. Uh, it's Alistair Payne on trumpet and, and Mo van der Deuce mm-hmm. uh, on the alto saxophone. And they just sound really beautiful together. They have this kind of very spacious way of playing both of them. Yeah. And they like this kind of fragmented uh, small motifs coming in and out. And they're very quick to find each other. So as soon as there's some space, they often just go on a little trip somewhere else in Horn world. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoy that. And then on drums, it's Son Mi Hong, who is who was here on your podcast yep. earlier. People will be familiar. They'll be familiar with most of the people I think yeah. on your record because they've they've been in and out of uh, exactly. either as guests or featured on people's records. Yeah. And stuff, so people are quite aware of them. Yeah, she's an incredible uh, South Korean drummer. Um, so much energy and so much explosive power that I really like. And I really like you can never really know where and when it comes or control it. Suddenly, <laughs> just explodes in your face in the music and yeah. It's fantastic. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, f- I feel like, so going through all of those those people, uh, the idea of finding people that are going to be unpredictable in the way that they treat your material mm. seems like a through line. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, is that something that you can speak to a bit? Like the. Yeah, I've 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 have a I already always had a. Uh, I'm really glad that I get to play with musicians that can add so much, but I'm still trying to figure out what I want for a balance because uh, all musicians are so different in the way they interpret material. Mm-hmm. And you know, some people play better when there is more space and they can just do whatever they want. And some people need everything, all the information, and then they handle so much information that they just sound amazing. Yeah. So I, I don't know. With these people, I was really attracted to, to all of the players uh, because they're able to kind of just take the material, make it their own, and play it, uh, engage with it in a really high level. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't just play what's on the paper, but but engage a lot with it musically, which I feel is the only thing that that matters. Because nobody can hear the paper. <laughs> no, fair <laughs> enough. But so I take like that is also part of your compositional approach. I take it that you yeah. you're writing stuff with the idea of like, okay, this is kind of a yeah uh, a kind of launch pad for whatever yeah. these people are going to do. Yeah, I feel a lot of the music is written very particularly to be a playground for someone to take further. Yeah. Uh, which made it hard for me to uh which makes it hard for me to play this music with other bands. Yeah, sure. Because it never sounds the way uh, I hear it sounding because I hear for example on on the Arm to the Teeth, I hear mm-hmm. Sunmi playing it and yeah. it it has never worked when I try playing it with other people. Okay. Yeah. It's, it has to be her. Yeah, that's interesting. So the idea of uh, I feel like there's kind of an, an interesting dichotomy there between uh, I want people who are going to like do something unpredictable, and at the same time, it's got to be the very specific people's unpredictability, right? Yeah, um, and it has to be an un, they're unpredictable in the way that I want them to be un, unpredictable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to find the balance between controlling and not controlling, because at the same time, I want to make music that that is me. Um, yeah, uh, because I know Sunmi's band and it's so great, so it makes no sense to try to copy how she sounds in her project. Yeah. So I want just to find 
uh, it's kind of like with chemicals or something. You want to find the perfect chemical that just explodes in this new liquid. Yeah. You want to do it right, otherwise it, the reaction doesn't happen. Yeah. And so can you can you speak to what what are the elements of that uh, chemical reaction for you? Like what exactly are the things that you think make what you're doing unique, I suppose? That's yeah. a terrible question. Uh, well, no, it's it's good. <laughs> it's it's just hard to answer, but I I I would definitely try. <laughs> It's I, I try to compose in a, in big juxtaposed blocks, and for me, a lot of what I do has to do with form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I have a strong feeling that form is one of the most fundamental things you can change in music and make it sound so crazy. And uh, form also deals with a lot of how we hear music and how we remember something uh, contrasted to something else. So so what I feel is special uh, about what I try to leave space with. Mm-hmm. Is that I try to compose in a way um, where I put in an idea and then leave a lot of space, and then put in an idea and leave a lot of space, and try to contrast uh, moments of a piece back and forth. Yeah, uh, in many ways. So having different tempos or having different key centers for mm-hmm. them, and how those would contrast to yeah. create like a larger structure to engage with as a musician. Yeah. So I feel the composition part is is the whole big structure and all the small things that happen. I want it to be uh, improvised, all yeah. of it. Sure, and I mean I hate to get into discussions of genre because I I feel like that's <laughs> kind of uh, it's almost a dirty word, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but it is uh, it is something that in in the line notes to your record you talk about, and I feel like it connects nicely to this idea, which is yeah. so. Like the elements that you're bringing to the table in terms of like where you're drawing this inspiration, that you don't want to talk about classical music, you don't necessarily want to talk about jazz. Um, there's a turn of phrase which is the idea of now music, which yeah. I like quite a lot. Yeah. Um, is any of that stuff particularly important to you? I mean, I suppose you talk about it in the line notes. So yeah. Presumably, it is. But I suppose I, I more and more tend to figure out that it's not even my job to label my music because other people will do it anyway for me and not care about what I call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel reviewers will just put a label on you for fun, and they don't even care what you think. <laughs> so I feel like that's just like a byproduct of the music industry that people that don't play music will want to sit somewhere and put a name on it. Yeah, and they, you know, they can do that, and I'll just try to make music. Yeah, um, but so does that name tend to be consistent? Do you feel like you're getting similar reactions from? Yeah, I don't know. I've been called like uh, late ECM, post-constructionist jazz or modern jazz or impro, modern impro music. Um, I I think labels are fun because you can create an image for a listener, but they're also a bit, for me, dangerous because if I go uh, in a festival as a classical band, <laughs> then everybody will come to the concert and then hate it because they yeah. don't get what they want. No, of course. So, so I try to call it uh, well, stay within the genre of jazz because yeah. uh, it it sort of fits somewhere in some niche somewhere there. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's that's where like you get into the terrible concepts of branding and all that kind of stuff. Where yeah. it's like, okay, who, what what is my target audience and all that kind of yeah. stuff? Is that something that you care about? The idea of like. Who it is that you're playing to, and and like um, less and less, less and less. I am, I, I, I'm very. Of course, I want. I really want everybody to be. I, w- I would like to reach as many people as possible, mm-hmm. uh, because I feel like my message in my music is not only specific to one kind of people. Yeah. Um, so I don't really care, but I also don't don't even think about it so much because I feel every time I try it, it's always been useless. <laughs> if I sit and do Facebook ads and decide, oh, okay, but now it's from 19-year-old to 25-year-olds in this city. Or something. Yeah. It just never I works. every jazz musician has yeah. tried that and yeah. failed somehow. <laughs> yeah. Like trying to be like, we need more young people, so we're going to go to like... Target Facebook ads. At them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's the whole point: is young people don't care about Facebook ads. Yeah, um, and also exactly. Facebook ads. Like, how is that a thing that's ever gotten anybody to come to a gig? Yeah, exactly. It's just so much, um, so much industry that wants our money as artists and wants us to focus on other things than making art. Mm-hmm. So I just try to not even think. I feel like the music is accessible enough, and I try to 
make more music all the time and push it as hard as I can on all platforms and real life. Yeah. And then whoever engages with it, I feel um, it spreads uh, yeah. by itself if people like it. And it doesn't help to make a Facebook ad for 50 <laughs> bucks. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, less and less, it seems. Yeah, less um, and less. I mean, you get views, but then those views don't mean anything anyway. Yeah, unless people are engaging with well, it. Well, the, the sad reality of it is that those views do sometimes mean things to certain bookers who lazily yeah. go and check out how many YouTube yeah. followers people have and decide, okay, this is the band I'm going to book, which is one of the most depressing things that I've seen come out of uh, stuff. Is the idea of... Uh, how many likes do you have on Instagram? Yeah, it's like, okay, I, I get it. I mean, it really depresses me that Hollywood works that way, which is like, okay, well, we're not going to hire this actor because they don't have enough Twitter following. Yeah. Like, okay, but... That is such an explicitly commercial endeavor that I understand. Yeah. That, like, okay, well, we need to have social media engagement and that kind of nonsense. But uh -huh. when you're dealing with a jazz festival, that's like, well, you know, we should hire these guys because they've got like hundreds of thousands of views on their videos. Yeah. Whereas I suppose that's a metric that does measure something, but at the same time, it's, it's just, just vague. It's vague, and it's a, it's a weird, uh, weird currency. And yeah. we're still warming up to the fact that that likes is currency. It's actual money, and it can be bought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. also a thing. Buy all those likes, and it's <laughs> pure money, man. Like they will book you because you have those hundred thousand likes. Yeah. Well, anyway, the the yeah. I feel like we're we're getting lost into a, a different territory, maybe. <laughs> but so uh, to come back to the actual record and, and to the music. Uh, uh, Maybe let's focus in on the Japan Suite first, because uh, yeah. that is the first thing that, that is on the record. Um, as far as I understood, it was a commission from from the Concert Cabal. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I was asked by um, by the organizers of uh, the Entree Festival in um, in Concert Cabal. Yeah, they were doing a project with the Van Gogh Museum, mm -hmm. uh, and I was asked uh, by them to come with forty five minutes of music. Yeah, so I said, hell yeah, yeah. And then, and so was it therefore. Was the theme of that already like the the Japanism and, yeah. and the, that stuff? Okay, so so they kind of came with that that idea, and then you kind of ran with it. Yeah, they just they just kind of gave me the theme, and uh, well, I I wouldn't have to I I didn't have to do anything. I could also just play my own music, yeah, and, okay. and not write anything new. But I decided the best way to make something real out of the situation was to try to write. Write these forty-five minutes of a full suite of Japanese yeah. music. Sure. And so, how does that? Um, how, how do you translate that idea of? Because, uh, like, to be clear, so we're talking about like Van Gogh inspired by uh, Japanese, Japanese prints, yeah. and and obviously the the uh, similar things happened. In music around the same time, like impressionism was kind of a thing that, mm. that happened. Like you can look to to Debussy and Satie and stuff yeah. and be like, okay, I see the kind of uh, uh, like Eastern influences there and stuff. But uh -huh. that's not something that I hear in your music. Like it doesn't seem to me like you went and checked out a bunch of Koto music and were like, no. okay, this is how I'm gonna, you know. Uh, and rather that you take like maybe formal stuff. So what exactly? Like how exactly do you translate? Like uh, pictorial composition into uh -huh. musical composition. It's a very good question. Yeah, when I when I started doing this, I, I tried to uh, be very careful not to steal to uh, obvious things because it just I felt like it would just become a mockery. Yeah, I didn't want to just put a bunch of pentatonic scales in it and call it Japan. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and the same. So I tried to be very specific. What is it that inspired Van Gogh? And when he bought these paintings, what how it reflected into his heart, art was a lot of um, parameters that exist in music, actually. So he started dealing with treating motives differently, mm -hmm. uh, whereas um, and starting to treating perspective differently, which for me is maybe form. Yeah, uh, how you treat a memory of an idea versus the idea that is now. Um, as well as he started treating colors different, um, which is also in music clear. It's loudness or how many chords you have or harmonic things mm -hmm. um, and lines and stuff like this. It was That was how it went into his art. And I thought, man, this stuff is actually very applicable. So I can 
very clearly start using my motives differently in the way that he started using his motives differently. Like, um, for example, a lot of these woodblock prints would have, have cut-off motives. So mm -hmm. if it's about a tree, you would only see half of the tree. Okay, yeah. Stuff like this, where like, damn, this is so um, relatable to music. I can actually start like only giving some of the picture and wait until the rest of the song to give the full theme. Yeah. So only start with a little bit and then just develop from there. That I thought was really cool. And also the idea of, of perspective. Um, in these woodblock pins, they were often about something that was really far away. But in the way they made art, often you wouldn't uh, even see the perspective. So a person that was a kilometer away would have the same size as the person that was two meters away. Okay, yeah. And you just see them in, in kind of, how's it called, vertical yeah. uh, relationship. So the per that kind of um, Waldo. If you think of Waldo, mm -hmm. sort of like that, people that are further away actually have the same size. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I thought you can do that with music also. Everything has kind of the same size, but placed differently. Mm -hmm. So worked a lot with kind of 2D placement almost yeah. of material. Cool. That was how I tried to kind of put it into the music. Yeah. And then, I mean, I, uh, as far as I understood, you based a lot of, you got a lot of inspiration from from Hokusai and from, yeah. from the series of prints there. Yeah. Um, I I really like that idea of um, the idea of taking one subject matter and then kind of obsessively re-examining yeah. it, um, and it seems like that's kind of what the structure of the of, of the suite is as well, which is the yeah. idea of um, dealing with similar subject matter but then from different perspectives. Like, can uh, you speak to that a bit? Um, yeah. Um. Well, yeah, I just the idea was similar subject matter, but treating it from different perspective. I uh, maybe maybe I completely misread the 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 thing, but it, the idea of uh, Hokusai taking Mount Fuji and oh like, yeah, okay, totally, yeah, for sure. You okay? Now I understand. Yeah, yeah, completely. I I thought that was one of the most striking and beautiful things about this Hokusai, is a Japanese artist, and he has yeah. this. Um, the collection, which is one of the most famous of the woodblock prints, which is 36 views of Mount Fuji. Yeah. And they're all paintings about Mount Fuji. Mm -hmm. But in some of them, it's even almost unnoticeable, like far in the back, and it's just a scene yeah. uh, that revolves around the volcano as a natural meeting spot or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. Which is so beautiful that, that the actual subject of it is so far away that it's almost just ideological. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which stands as a really beautiful... Um, Metaphor for for the ideology almost that binds us together that we mm -hmm. don't see. So I thought that was kind of what I wanted to do with the suite as well. Yeah. So I first off I wrote it as four pieces of, about the sea, mm. but the sea seen from different um, uh, seasons and places. Yeah, and then later on it became summer, winter, spring, fall. Yeah, sure. The right direction. So summer, fall, spring, winter, fall, summer, fall. Yeah. Winter, spring, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. and then the the there's the other aspect of the the Japan suite that I do want to touch upon is um, that there is spoken word. Yeah. Um, am I correct that Fuen Santa wrote that stuff? No, I did. Okay. I did, yeah. Cool. So, how do you? Um, is that something that you had uh, familiarity with, like writing? Uh, uh, kind of. No, not at all. And, actually. Uh, I was gonna make people write it or or take some poetry for somewhere, but then I thought that man, it's so much more real if I just write something. Mm -hmm. So I tried to kind of capture from a above perspective the images of places, and then, yeah. then put it there. Cool. Because it was first for a concert, so if I really hated it, I could always take it out. <laughs> but then I thought, yeah, it feels honest, so it feels cool to yeah to include it. No, cool. I, I mean, it really works. Um, yeah, I think it's really um, it ties the thing together in kind of an interesting way, and it also brings yeah. out that thematic material in in obviously a much more clear way, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, obviously now, so we we talk all about the the Japan suite, and then uh, I'd like to talk about the other one um, specifically. Uh, again, there's another thematic thing, right? Which is uh, you, you're discussing Nietzsche, yeah. which uh, it's interesting. Like I, I, I had uh, Jorgis Hulofs on the show, yeah. and he talked a whole bunch about Nietzsche, and he's obviously like studied philosophy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he's uh, uh, 
he's very engaged in that kind of uh, yeah. kind of idea. Can you can you tell me a bit about that? Like yeah. how how that came uh, to Well, I got my love from Nietzsche from Joris. Okay, because right. Because actually I did a, a course <laughs> in the conservatory which is um which I hope they continue with that he was teaching called Philosophy and Music yeah. uh, about improvisation and freedom. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, that was really inspiring to me. So we we read a lot of Nietzsche because he's such a big Nietzsche fan. Yeah. And one thing that really captured me, there was something we started with, but a metaphor that was so strong that every time I talk about it with someone, they understand it and they get really engaged. Mm -hmm. And that's this whole, um, from the three metamorphoses, the camel, the lion and the child, Mm -hmm. and how if if you grow as a person, which you don't necessarily do uh, spiritually, um, you're able to make these three transformations uh, possibly over and over again as a sense of growing. Yeah. So as a camel, you would only take on knowledge and carry it and um, not even think about it. As lion, you negate it. You throw it all away and say, no, I want my space. Mm-hmm. Um, I, need, I need my own thing. And you say no to everything. And as a child, you kind of rise above and affirm. You take what you know, but you also do your own thing. And it's not so important. Yeah. So I thought that was a really, really beautiful uh, three-part three metaphor. And uh, and it fit really well uh, to the subject that I also had on those three conversations, which was the first one was about palm, mm-hmm. which is about also um, just just openness, uh, showing who you are. Uh, sort of the second one is aggressivity or sort of knuckles, and the yeah. last one is fingertips, which is. Uh, which where if palm is a symbol of, of friendliness and stuff, fingertips is the way we actually feel things. Yeah, sure. And uh, go further. So yeah, I wanted to dedicate that to to Nietzsche. Yeah, those three movements because they're yeah, it's a very powerful metaphor. And I kept thinking to myself, man, I'm, which one am I now? Am I a camel now or <laughs> my line right now? Or yeah, you know. So yeah, it's really cool. Interesting. It's a cool perspective to to have. Uh, is this this idea of having kind of explicit external material as uh, as source material and sources of inspiration yeah. for your compositions is that kind of is that super common in the way you write? Do you uh, ha- like how much yeah. how much of that is integrated into your process? Because I mean, I I speak with so many people who will tell me, well, uh, I add titles later to my music because yeah. I just figure out what it means later or it doesn't have to mean anything or like whatever, but it sounds to me like it's, there's a much more kind of intricate thing going on here. Yeah, I'm just a really big fan of of, of deadlines. Uh, <laughs> I, I just can't get anything done unless I, I make sure that it, it needs to be done. And sometimes I do that because uh, I get an idea of a piece of music. I want a four-part suite on something. Okay. And then I'll, I'll set the rehearsals and maybe, every, and you know, I'll set up, up gigs and do all the, the bands and stuff yeah. before I have the music ready and then I will finish it. Uh, but sometimes the deadline is other things. So sometimes it's just a, a plan of having some music and then then I won't start thinking about the material in a very constructed way. Mm-hmm. So it depends a lot. So for me, it's more about the idea of I try to fill in the blanks before I actually write stuff down as yeah. much as possible. So I, I writing down notes should be the last thing in the process. I want to know exactly how it sounds before I write anything down. <laughs> so it could be that it's about Japanese, but it could also be that I want a solo guitar thing that kind of gives me the feeling of blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. And it should start a bit like this and end a bit like this, and I'll make the decisions when they make themselves, maybe. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I, I, I feel that that yeah. is something that I, I really relate to. I feel like my process is really similar, which is like uh, kind of sketch out something as a concept before yeah. you've even started thinking about the specifics of of content. Yeah, exactly. Um, and indeed, that kind of structure then kind of forces you to fill in the blanks, right? Yeah. Um, and often when you present yourself with a question, you will find an answer eventually. So... A lot of stuff I'm doing now is uh, working on, on new stuff, EP and stuff, where I do all the mixing and recording myself. Okay. And and that's also very much, you just throw yourself into a pool of questions mm-hmm. and you take it easy and deal with every question once, uh, every question as it comes. Yeah. And then you make all those decisions. 
so it doesn't have to be that there is a big plan, but but the feeling of of knowing when it stops helps a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's why it helps to have this. Yeah. The, the concept ready before you have to finish it. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's what you just mentioned is kind of a good bridge into the the into another topic that I wanted to address. Uh, you're talking about making an EP, kind of uh-huh. somewhat uh, self-producing it, um, which which seems at the complete other end of the spectrum of the way you produce yeah. this record. Yeah, um, which is and people will be familiar with this if they listened to my episode with Laura Bolens. Uh, which is uh, uh, dealing with uh, the DXD format and mm. recording to extreme high fidelity and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, how did that come about? I mean, obviously, there's a label involved. Um, was that a process that you um, was that daunting somehow? Like, what? How, how? How did that go about? Yeah, I mean, the the label I did my album for was Triptych, and they are. Well, that's their whole thing. They they have these crazy microphones that cost thousands of euros, and every mm-hmm. cable is what I don't know, eight hundred euros per meter. Yeah, and it's all crystallized gold. Yeah, like only one company in the world makes. It's completely ridiculous, <laughs> and you know, and uh, to be honest, all that stuff uh, it doesn't matter to me uh, at all. Uh, one of my favorite musicians is Thelonious Monk, which is you know terrible recordings, and it doesn't matter. To yeah, me. it even makes it better. I wouldn't want to hear that in high-fi fidelity, full surround. It destroys the some of the character. Of yeah, it's it. nice that the piano tuner wasn't in. Exactly, 10 and that's not how he played the music. It wasn't a loud place often, you know. Yeah, I don't know the live gigs were loud with people there in a bar in a room. Mm-hmm. So it's not. It doesn't. Not everything has to be so clear and metallic. Mm-hmm. But what I really love about Triptych is the people that works there. Yeah, a guy called Brandon Heinst, who's um, well, I I had some talks with him, and he's just very passionate about music. Yeah, and uh, I connected very well with him. So mm-hmm. so I thought, man, yeah, heck yeah, you know, let's yeah, let's make this album. I suppose the other aspect of of recording in that way is. Um, I take it that you guys just all recorded in one room and you yeah. just did it, and what you did is just what it was. Yeah, um, which is probably both a consequence of that type of recording and also very much ties into the way you envision making your music. Yeah, right? especially at that moment, it was very important to me also as the concept of the album to have a fully uh, as raw as raw and um, unaltered uh, product as possible. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be um, my music, and I wanted it to show the bands in action on the CD. Yeah, to have some some sense of transparency to it, which ties in with, of course, the the recording thing. Yeah, the, how they recorded with so high quality is order also in order for them to have that transparency to show to give the listener a feeling that they're hearing just a person play right in front of them. Yeah, sure. So I wanted to try to keep it like that. So what is um, I don't know how involved you were in this process, but uh, what what is the mixing stage like for a project like this? Because as far as I understood, there's like a five point one mix and all that kind of stuff, and I don't have a five point one setup, so I I can't uh, can't take advantage of that. But um, is it literally like a recreation of the space in which you recorded, or are you dealing with like where are you placing the listener in yeah, that 5.1 mix? Yeah, you can totally what? decide. Like, yeah, of course. But what yeah. what is the decision that you made? I suppose yeah, is the question. I, we kind of. Uh, I was just sitting with Brendan while we mixed it for for 5.1 as well, mm-hmm. and we, I don't know. It's yeah, we sort of just place them like a band, but not really. Yeah, it's like you're standing in the middle of a circle of us. Yeah, sure. But then, sort of like when you mix. Um, Stereo as well, and you put the snare in a bit on one side. And the drum sometimes is a bigger umbrella yeah. than maybe the horns, which is like just on one side or one side. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe the drums are some parts of the drums are left and some parts are right. Same goes with the five point one. Some some parts of the drums maybe like is luring in your front side, whereas some parts of them is in your back sometimes. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, but it's it's a crazy experience to hear. Hear music in five point one stereo. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Yeah, but so is that like? Are you making creative decisions that 
that go beyond. It sounds like that's what you're doing. You're yeah. that go beyond the simple idea of reproduction in 3D space of what would have happened. Yeah, I think we didn't make enough of those creative decisions because of the the idea of the album from the start that it should just be real. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a lot of decisions in there, but they're not so provocative. All of them. Okay. The five point one is is more literally a five point one feeling of the space, of course, with some positioning like yeah, uh, both closeness and not closeness, and where the drums move. Yeah, um, also different from the sweets, I think. But but there, I mean, it's not totally wacko. Yeah, okay. which is of course it could be like everything's just flying around you all the time. Yeah, um, but the focus we wanted to keep was on the music still. Yeah, I don't think that would make yeah. any sense with this kind of material. Anyway, no, right? no, yeah, um, it wouldn't make sense a lot, but it would be fun. Yeah, so maybe in the future you can make a remix version. With yeah, the, just like <laughs> just like the band in a carousel around you, yeah, just moving around. <laughs> <laughs> and so. Um, I mean, I don't know if you if if uh, if you have much to to talk about on this yet. But so you you mentioned making an EP now and, yeah. and producing stuff by yourself and yeah. things. Uh, what is that process like? Is that something that you've uh, picked up yourself, like all recording techniques and stuff, or is are you learning as you go? Like how? Uh... Um, well, I've I did a lot of um, I've always known programs well since I was a child. I met up with my friends and we started. Cubase and put on mics and different things and yeah. try to record and mix and make mm-hmm. things with sound. So the way an interface work, uh, it comes very natural to me. Yeah, I kind of understand how logic works. Yeah, and so so recently I've been writing a lot of music and uh, I've been wanting uh, this kind of music to be heard. And the way it seemed like the funniest way for me to record it and to have the most control over everything. Uh, um, was to get the bands together and record all the music, but then subsequently going to someone and say, "Can you record more drums over this, or can you record more alto over this, or sit at mm-hmm. home and redo guitar parts or more guitar parts?" Yeah. So have kind of a, a the opposite experience okay. of the previous album, yeah. which is why it's uh, it's so different, and which is why I'm really enjoying spending my time working on this mm-hmm. right now. Cool. And so, is there is there any kind of a like date that people can expect to, to hear that stuff? Or? No, it's they're all gonna. Uh, some of them are coming coming out the next uh, few weeks as okay. singles, hopefully. Yeah. And uh, and for the rest, it will come out hopefully by September or something. I'll have it out on all streaming platforms. Cool. Um, I feel like for me as a musician these days, it's very important to. To understand that the game has changed drastically as what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. It's uh, as I see it, um, the name of the game is not really CDs anymore because the for- <laughs> we, you know, we were we had a great thing with the limitations of the format that now we put what like ten songs on an album and we push it out. Mm-hmm. But now there's no limitations anymore. Yeah. Uh, you could put a thousand songs in an album and just put it on Spotify, and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these limitations gone. I feel like we're all kind of searching for what to do. With this weird new world where the limitations are formality because we don't know what the fuck to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh my God, I have to make a CD. I suppose it will be 10 songs <laughs> in yeah. this order, but why? So I'm, I'm trying to kind of push, push the envelope on, on how I deal with career. So, yeah. so my newest endeavor is to push out uh, smaller things, but at a more rapid pace and yeah. just keep making things. Yeah. No, that's interesting, and it also makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's funny how you say the idea of those limitations because it's true that you go back to like early, early recording techniques dealing with cylinders and stuff, which basically meant that you had to like the music was completely determined by the fact that oh, well, this is only how long it's going to be able to be, so yeah. we better not, we, you know. Um, I sometimes wonder whether certain aspects of like the way people improvise collectively and stuff was just kind of a result of well, we only can fit. 24 bars exactly. more in, so if uh, the clarinet, the trombone, and the trumpet all want to play solo, they should probably do it all at the same time, because otherwise yeah. we're not going to get it in. right? And uh, Music was always so influenced about the limitations it came with, so, yeah. so now I'm trying to find those limitations as they are now. Yeah. And, uh, and try to not be, uh, be bothered by past limitations that don't even exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, I, I really hope that 
all of the rest of the industry kind of catches up to that soon because there's yeah. a sense of there is still the reality of well you don't have a record out so I'm not going to book you on my on my venue yeah. and that kind of nonsense and it's like well, I want a physical CD to be able to give you a review and that oh, kind yeah, of thing. Oh yeah, that happens. Yeah, and and I suppose that's also just a generational thing, right? And and that's yeah, going to move I mean, forward. It's not a surprise to anyone that with anything I think everybody if anyone thinks of a jazz critic is an old white guy. Yeah, because there always are. You know, so of course they don't catch on with the time. Well, I shouldn't be saying this, of course, on on, uh, on the internet. But honestly, it's also a, what we talked about before. It's a byproduct of the music industry, and they're not going to make a change before we do. Um, but but yeah, I I think it's happening here more and more. But I would like to see even those guys do more reviews of concerts or yeah. or small things and not focus so much on this. Antiquated product, which is a CD, <laughs> yeah, which is which is a cool as a little box, and and well, I just made a bunch, so buy them, please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, they're going to take up storage space somewhere. Of course, but uh, it's you know, that's that's one package that we actually don't really need. It's a formality. Yeah, and we also, I mean, there's also, there's a whole other layer of like ecological considerations uh, with all that stuff, right? Which is just yeah. like making more plastic and making yeah. more like nonsense, where you like actually. What we want to make is waves that travel through air, exactly. right? So, yeah. like that, the product is that. Like, hopefully, we can, yeah, it's make been, that into ones and zeros and get that to you faster and easier. Exactly. Yeah, for me, that's a big part of where I'm trying to go. Uh, for sure, try to kind of catch up with the game as it is and not be stuck. Yeah, sure, and else. also just define the game, right? Like that's where it has yeah. to be. At a certain point, you just have to decide well. You know, yeah, because um, it's all on us, and it feels like we're all just kind of struggling or ignoring that it changed and stay in the past, and that's that's cool. I think everybody does it their own way, and it's all good. Well, but for me, it's been important to to push it. It's also the easier path, right? Yeah, like if you follow the well-trodden path, then you're going to get the somewhat limited amount of success that is still available to you along that mm. path, and. And we learn from the people that who, for for whom that path really worked, right? Yeah. That's a, I think that's a problem with all kinds of uh, of industries, right? Is that if you're talking to the masters and saying, "How do I make it?" They say, "Well, I can tell you how you make it forty years ago." Exactly. But like, there's no uh, there's no kind of uh, clear textbook. Which I, I and I find that that's um, it is a nice thing that. Uh, people from our generation are actually getting opportunities to share their yeah. knowledge now. I mean, I know that you studied under Renier and stuff, yeah. and and the the fact that 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 him and Ben and and Yorgos and those guys are getting to actually like teach it in proper conservatories and stuff means that we are getting this new vision of what the scene is like and an actual like real understanding. Yeah, we're of that. not we're not stopping. That could be that would be the. Uh, because there is no death of the music, music keeps on going, but it would be the death of a beautiful thing that is in Amsterdam, which yeah. is a really high level um, front facing conservatory. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it gets stuck and starts looking backwards and being a conserva conservatory, actually, yeah. <laughs> then uh, yeah, it would just be a shame because then, I mean, you know, there's, there's plenty of people that don't like jazz. There's enough. <laughs> so, you know, so my teacher, uh, Bruce Foreman, said, make jazz history, don't make jazz history. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, is there any other stuff that we haven't touched on? I mean, um, things that you're up to as a sideman, any stuff people can look forward to besides the EP that, that maybe you want to mention? Well, uh, we're playing in, uh, since since this will be probably out in time, we're playing on June 16 in Concerto in yeah. Amsterdam and sure. June 14 in Phoenix Music Factory in Rotterdam. Okay. Uh, with Sun Me as well. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, yeah, it's gonna be a really big show. It's gonna I'm gonna push push the envelope as far as the show goes when it's a jazz. So expect expect nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, there will obviously be links to uh, your website and all that stuff. So even if people are listening to this months uh, down the line, years yeah. down the line, then uh, they will be able to find out whatever it is that you'll be up to. Yeah. Then. Um, I always like to end the show by asking my guests to recommend something, anything that you've found particularly inspiring, something that you think deserves some attention. Uh, it can be just about anything. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I've 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 been thinking about this because I've been listening to the podcast. It's a scary question, <laughs> but but 
even it's not out yet. It's going to be out in September. But Rainier and Ben's album Mokum in Hi-Fi, yeah, deserves a huge recommendation because they're some of the um, most insane musicians I've ever heard in uh, in my life. Yeah, and they do their their thing is so groundbreaking and so so cr- their universe of music, their own little world is so crazy. Yeah, there's nothing like it. It's like it's like when you watch a really good movie and you just don't want to go back to real life afterwards. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> so yeah, it's gonna be out in September. So make sure to buy the record because they're artists like all of us and they need support. Yeah, and uh, and if anyone deserves it, they do for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think. I think I'm going to have to have Ben on to to talk about that uh, yeah. closer to that date because obviously I had Rainier was on not so long ago talking about the previous thing they'd made together with the yeah. with the Metropole Orchestra. So, um, but Ben is still uh, uh, still hasn't been on the show. So I think people can look forward to that in a few months. And yeah, that would time, be amazing. Um, I would I would love to hear that. Cool, uh, Dice. Uh, thanks again so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, completely my pleasure. There'll be links to Tyson's website at soundofthemoment.com, so be sure to check that out for tour dates and his upcoming EP. Many thanks to my fellow members of Ketro for providing intro and outro music for the show. Please subscribe to Sound of the Moment wherever you like to get your podcasts. Leave favorable reviews and ratings wherever that may be. And tell a friend if you know anybody who might like to listen to these kinds of conversations. Go to patreon.com slash sound the moment if you want to make a donation to help me keep the show up and running. Many thanks to those of you who already donate. You can reach me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook and you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. Finally, I'd like to play you a track from the Japan Suite, which you heard so much about during the show. This is Fall Dear November. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment. month in the Gregorian calendar, the ninth month of the ancient Roman calendar. You are the pounding waves of the Baltic Ocean. You slice through cliffs and rocks and time and space. You are intimidating and threatening. You are envious and jealous, my ally and my foe.
focus on my conscience. I've got clots in my fingers. 